0: Hey, Faye, it's CREOG season again, um, and so we need to help residents figure out the best way to study aside from just listening to the podcast.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that um, we did when we were residents was to look at the OBG project, which can give you really quick updates on the most up-to-date practice guidelines, as well as create your own library where you can go back to those guidelines um, that you specifically like.
0: Head on over to our website, creagservercoffee.com and check out the sidebar. Chief residents, you can get OBG first, the premium product, absolutely free for your chief year. That'll cover you for CREAGS as well as your board studying. And residents, you can also benefit from the resident core curriculum, absolutely free. Again, head over to our website, creagservercoffee.com, check out the sidebar. Happy studying.
1: Alright guys, welcome back. This is Faye.
0: This is Nick.
1: And this is...
0: Creogs, Creogs Over Coffee. Alright Faye, so today we're going to talk about something that I feel like I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about or even doing at all, but there is a practice bulletin on it, and that's endometrial ablation.
1: Yeah. So today, our learning objectives are we are going to understand what an endometrial ablation is and how it's performed, though, you know, this is a podcast, so we're not going to go in-depth into our surgical technique or anything. Um, We're going to review the indications for endometrial ablation and also discuss the risks of ablation and contraindications, so who is and who is not a good candidate. And finally, we're going to talk a little bit about, complications after endometrial ablation and how they can be managed. As a side note, uh, one of our inspirations to make this podcast was actually from TikTok. Yes, we're uh, on TikTok now, I guess. Basically, there has been a lot of misinformation about endometrial ablation on TikTok as it's been touted as something to make your periods go away and also a method of birth control that is non-hormonal. It's also done in this way that's kind of like things your doctor won't tell you. And I found that it's been kind of touted by a lot of these younger creators on TikTok, like people who are less than 30. And so I think, you know, part of the reason behind this podcast is so that for our listeners, you may get younger patients coming to you for an ablation and inquiring about it. So this is kind of helped you to learn a little bit more as well. To follow along, there's a really old practice bulletin, um, practice bulletin 81, all the way from May 2007. Wow. So let's dive into this, Nick. Um, Let's start with the basic question, which is, what is an endometrial ablation?
0: Yeah, so always good to start with some history when reviewing these topics. So it was developed originally in the 1930s, and it's gone through a couple of iterations and options and techniques. There was like this kind of Cool-sounding cryo endometrial ablation in the 1960s, where you super cooled the endometrial lining, Fay. Like I don't know, that's something I've never seen or heard of, but sounds kind of neat. Um, and we
1: still do it, apparently. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but became more prevalent over time, particularly in the 1980s, as hysteroscopy became really widely available. How is endometrial ablation done? Kind of thinking about that. Um, There's a lot of different ways and techniques, and we're not gonna go into each exact technique. Um, That's what your residency program's for, and your program or your institution may have kind of a favorite way to do it. Um, But let's review some of the basics behind each one, at least. So the first we can talk about is a laser and resectoscopic endometrial ablation. Um, And this is done under direct hysteroscopic visualization. And you use the resectoscope. If you've never seen a resectoscope before, it's that monopolar kind of curved thing that you use to kind of scoop out fibroids, endometrial tissue, and things. Um, But you can use that resectoscope to ablate the endometrium with four Primary techniques. There's endometrial desiccation, where you use a surgical roller ball or roller barrel, and that basically heats the tissue up to about 60 to 90 degrees centigrade and destroys the endometrium that way. There's resection of the endometrium, where you can use a monopolar or bipolar loop electrode. Again, that's going to resect the endometrium to the level of the myometrium. So, same way if you've seen like a hysteroscopic resection of fibroids with the resectoscope. There's radiofrequency vaporization, where you use high energy radiofrequency to heat the tissue, the intracellular water in the tissue, specifically to about 100 degrees Celsius, and that vaporizes the tissue, but no tissue is actually removed in that technique. And then finally, there's also a laser vaporization technique that, in principle, is similar to the radiofrequency vaporization, but uses a laser instead. Faye, how about some non-resectoscopic techniques?
1: Yeah, so we're going to talk about the ones that are available in the United States. Um, so these can be nice because these can sometimes be less uncomfortable and can actually be performed in the office depending on your patient tolerance. Uh, the first is the bipolar radio frequency, which I think people know this as the Novasure. And I remember like using this pretty frequently in residency. Like this was the one that like some (laughs) of our attendings reached for. So this is a three-dimensional bipolar mesh probe that delivers radio frequency current uh, until a specific tissue impedance is reached. The next is cryotherapy that's often known as HER option or serene. I I have actually never used cryotherapy before for endometrial ablation, but essentially um, there's a probe that gets inserted through the cervix into the uterus and then the, the endometrium is cooled via liquid nitrogen or differential gas exchange through that probe. And then the others are things like circulating hot water, which is like the hydrotherm ablator or HTA ablation, um, which I think was also one that some of our attendings favored in residency. This is um, the only one that we're talking about here that's non-resectoscopic that actually has a hysteroscope attached to the device so you can see the inside of the uterus. And it's actually kind of cool because you can watch the uterine tissue go from that like healthy pink color to white as it gets desiccated. Um, A sheath is inserted into the uterus and then heated saline Is administered for about 10 minutes and the fluid should heat up to 90 degrees Celsius. Um, I remember kind of just like sitting there as an intern holding up this like kind of heavy device for 10 minutes and trying to figure out intern (laughs) tripod. Exactly, trying to figure out like where to rest my arm for that 10 minutes. Um, And then the last one that is uh, uh, approved is the Minerva, which is a combined thermal and bipolar frequency where heat is applied to the endometrium via silicone membrane with circulating ionized argon gas. Um, And you might see this advertised like as a cool way of saying like plasma is superheated um, to ablate the endometrium. There's also, the last one is vapor ablation, which is no longer FDA approved. One of the things that I think we should highlight here is that after the endometrium is burned, it can scar down, leading to difficulty re-entering the uterine cavity in the future, um, which we'll talk a little bit about later on. And then the last thing to consider in terms of your technique is anesthesia. Most trials describing non-resectoscopic ablation devices have used local anesthesia and parenteral conscious sedation at the same time. However, you can use cervical and paracervical block if desired to do procedures in the office, um, but you need to make sure you select a patient that is a good candidate for an in-office procedure, meaning someone who is at low risk for complication and also someone who could tolerate a, a procedure like this. So Nick, let's move on now to you know some of the indications, contraindications, things like that. You mentioned something about abnormal uterine bleeding, but who is actually like the right candidate for an endometrial ablation?
0: It's a great question, Faye. So Remember that the treatment of endometrial ablation is indicated for patients experiencing heavy bleeding who are premenopausal and have no desire for future fertility. This should be a treatment that's reserved for those with heavy ovulatory menstrual bleeding and should not be used to treat abnormal uterine bleeding due to anovulation this is really because you should figure out the cause of that abnormal bleeding otherwise and treat the cause. So in the case of anovulatory bleeding, you think about PCOS, for instance, um, and you should work on treating the PCOS. That's not to say that a patient with PCO can't have an ablation, but you need to make sure that you're treating causes of PCOS otherwise, and particularly the issues that are associated with anovulation. Usually, Patients who seek out ablation or patients who have tried other medical therapies and have failed um, overall should not have medical therapies. Another key counseling point of patients seeking out endometrial ablation is that you shouldn't counsel the patient towards amenorrhea. You should counsel the patient that this is really a technique that's meant to normalize menstruation and does not necessarily achieve complete amenorrhea. It's not a treatment to not have menstruation. And there's variability in studies in the amount of menstrual bleeding that women experience after an endometrial ablation. In a one meta-analysis, Both non-resectoscopic and resectoscopic ablation techniques resulted in similar rates of amenorrhea a year, but that rate of amenorrhea actually was only 37% for the non-resectoscopic and 38% for the resectoscopic techniques. So it's not a cure. All right, so Faye, let's say that we've gone through the counseling and our patient still is like, yep, I'm down the endometrial ablation route, this is what I want to do. What other things do we need to do as part of our preoperative evaluation to make sure this is the right technique for them?
1: So the first thing to do is to evaluate the structure and histology of the endometrial cavity. And the reasons are twofold. The first is you want to rule out cancer. Um, You can do this either via hysteroscopy or an endometrial biopsy in the office, but you don't want to mask the reason for heavy bleeding to be cancer, right? You don't want to ablate the endometrium, which can then scar itself and make later evaluation even more difficult. Those with EIN or cancer should not undergo ablation and should have actual treatment, for their um, EIN or cancer, um, either with you or by referral to a GYN oncologist. So that's number one. The second is you should evaluate the shape of the uterine cavity. And this can be done either via sounding the uterus uh, with a physical exam, you could do a transvaginal ultrasound, you can do sonohistogram, hysteroscopy, or a combination of any of these. So uh, the first thing is you wanna evaluate the internal architecture of the uterus. So for example, is there a bicornuate uterus? Are there fibroids that destroy the uterine cavity? Is there a septum? The reason is that many of the devices um, that use non-resectoscopic um, methods for ablation, such as the Novasure, had uterine cavity requirements. So just an ex- as an example, we're not gonna talk about all the requirements for all the different devices out there. For the Novasure, the cavity must sound between six to 10 centimeters and have a cornua to cornua distance of at least 2.5 centimeters. Also, those uteruses with polyps or fibroids that are more than two centimeters were excluded from the FDA approval studies. So basically, you wanna make sure that your patient has a uterine cavity that would actually um, be able to be used with one of these devices if that's what you're going to use. And then the last thing is we can consider some pretreatment. This is not required, but most surgeons will usually use some type of hormonal agent to pretreat, to thin the endometrium, to lead to potentially higher rates of amenorrhea or less bleeding afterwards. So for example, a GnRH agonist like Lupron can be used 30 to 60 days prior to your procedure. All right. So Let's say we have now selected our patient, we've done our uh, evaluation beforehand, and we think that they are a pretty good candidate for an endometrial ablation, Nick. What are some of the risks that you're going to counsel that patient on?
0: Practice Bulletin 81 um, actually has a nice table that we'll post on the website detailing some of the complication um, or rates of adverse events from endometrial ablation. Um, Some of these things are things that you probably think about already, like vaginal infection, endometritis, um, hematometra. Um, Some of these things can be kind of scary looking though. I mean, there's no risk of bacteremia, there's risk of thermal injury. Let's think, About some of these rare but possible complications just owing to the techniques. One to think about is distension media overload, just like in usual hysteroscopy. Um, Especially if you're using that monopolar resectoscope, you're needing to use electrolyte free fluid like 3% sorbitol or 5% mannitol. We had a lovely episode on hysteroscopy with Andre Delinko a couple of months ago. Um, Listen back to that one to kind of get a sense again for the importance of knowing your fluid and what your might need to be, or need not to be rather. Uterine trauma is another possibility of a complication. Um, There's a possibility of injury, and particularly with ablation, you're thinking about injury that's caused when there's hemorrhage or perforation. When there's perforation, you have to worry about collateral damage, right? Especially if you're doing something like a hydrothermal ablation, where kind of cervical laceration or vaginal burn can occur if that hot fluid comes pouring back out through the cervix. There's also concern of post-ablation tubal ligation syndrome, and this complication is specific for patients who have had a history of tubal ligation. You can think about post-tubal ligation syndrome basically as the cyclic pelvic pain that results from trapped endometrium in one or both cornea, right? So you've blocked off the exit for one place for that endometrium to end up, and so it gets stuck up there in the cornea and can't come down. Um, The incidence of post-ablation tubal ligation syndrome in these patients is reported as high as 10%. Um, Faye, how about some more significant complications as if that weren't enough already? Right. So
1: these are some of the things that, you know, we want to warn patients about um, after an ablation. So the first is pregnancy. Ablation is not designed to be a form of birth control and pregnancy can happen after an endometrial ablation. So patients should be counseled extensively that they shouldn't get pregnant and they should use a form of reliable birth control afterwards. And the reason we counsel against pregnancy after an ablation is that those that continue the pregnancy have higher rates of bad outcomes, things like malpresentation, leading to need for cesarean, prematurity, placenta accreta, and perinatal mortality. So all reasons to try and tell patients to avoid pregnancy and to use another form of birth control. The next is endometrial malignancy. It's not that endometrial ablation leads to higher rates of malignancy. However, due to scarring of the endometrium, it can make it more difficult for the usual assessment of the endometrial tissue, such as via an endometrial biopsy in the office or hysteroscopy even. In one study of 303 patients who needed some type of endometrial sampling after ablation, the failure rate for obtaining bleeding assessment was as high as 40%. Sometimes, you know, I I feel like um, our attendings when we were in residency would talk to patients about other types of procedures that they could do during the endometrial ablation. So what other procedures could we potentially perform at that time? And then last of all, I guess the, you know, the big question is who is not a good candidate for an ablation?
0: Yeah. So just very briefly about those other procedures, um, No. Obviously, if you've got a hysteroscope, you can do other things at the same time, right? So if there's a polyp that's present or a little submucous fibroid that you want to scoop out of there first, um, doing a myomectomy would be fine and easy enough to do. Back in the days where we did hysteroscopic sterilization, that's something that could be achieved at the same time. Though Again, you worry about that post-ablation tubal syndrome. More modernly, I guess you'd say the IUD is the thing that people might do immediately after an ablation. Um, we don't need to get into the specifics of all of that today, but obviously just if you're thinking about it, if you're there already and you've got a hysteroscope, you can accomplish other things too alongside an ablation. Next, to talk about contraindications, Faye, as you talked about before, uterine size and shape is an important thing to have a sense of before proceeding with an ablation. All non-resectoscopic endometrial ablation devices have limitations with respect to cavity size and with the extent of anatomic distortion. And so if you're using one of those devices, you need to be aware of exactly what those limitations are. You shouldn't perform an endometrial ablation if a patient is pregnant or recently pregnant or if they desire future pregnancy. Um, You certainly shouldn't perform an ablation if there's an active or recent uterine infection ongoing, Um, and then as we've mentioned a couple times already, but just for good measure, don't perform an ablation if someone has a suspected endometrial malignancy or EIN. Additionally, you should consider not performing an ablation if there's presence of any sort of uterine anomaly, so things like septums or unicornuate uteri, um, any myometrial thinning after prior uterine surgery, so thinking about the patients who may have had a prior abdominal myomectomy or multiple C-sections. Um, that may predispose them to additional complications. And then finally, postmenopausal women. Um, there's really not a lot of study of ablation in postmenopausal women, um, and the ones that exist are pretty small. Um, The studies that have been done have been done in those with persistent bleeding in patients using HRT. Again, the big caution here is that if someone has postmenopausal bleeding and you're considering doing an ablation, um, that risk for endometrial malignancy is super high, and the risk that you're going to need to try and figure out what's going on again is also super high. Um, And so an ablation may not be appropriate if you think you have to go back into the cavity to assess for malignancy later on. Faye, let's get to the meat of this. Um, you know, say again, we've gone through this whole workup evaluation with the patients. They have declined hysterectomy or something more invasive. They think ablation is the technique for them. Um, we've talked to them about indications and contraindications. What can we tell them about expectations of outcome from these procedures?
1: Yeah, so overall outcomes in terms of non-resectoscopic versus resectoscopic ablations um, result in comparable rates of amenorrhea and overall patient satisfaction. And overall, that patient satisfaction rate is pretty high. Um, however, resectoscopic ablation is associated with more OR time, um, more frequent use of general anesthesia, obviously, um, and increased risk of surgical complications such as fluid overload, which we talked about before. However, resectoscopic procedures are less costly. They cost somewhere between $125 to $150 per procedure because we're using, um, you know, instruments that don't need to be discarded uh, that can be used over and over again. With the non-resectoscopic techniques, you know, you're usually using an instrument that has parts that need to be discarded uh, that need to, you know, you need to get new parts for those. And so usually, because of the device itself, these techniques are a little bit more expensive, about $850 to $1,300. In terms of other things like improvement in bleeding, Patients may have irregular bleeding immediately following procedure, so it's important um, to talk to patients about that, and success rates should not be determined until 8 to 12 weeks after surgery. A randomized trial of HER option, that cryoablation technique versus resectoscope, um, showed comparable rates of menstrual reduction at one year, 85 to 89%. And again, patient satisfaction overall is high for both types of ablation, 91 versus 88% at one year, and similarly at two to five years, 93 versus 87. What what else happens afterwards, Nick? I mean, are people just generally satisfied with their ablation and kind of go on their merry way and never need any more intervention?
0: Well, if only it were that simple— <laughs> um, one thing that you do have to consider again, given that we talked earlier, Faye, about sort of this being a reduction in bleeding rather than a way to achieve amenorrhea, is the need for subsequent surgery. Um, and the rates of subsequent surgery range from 17 to 25 percent for the resectoscopic and non-resectoscopic techniques. Hysterectomy rates after ablation range somewhere between 14 and 19 percent. Um, Patients who are more likely to have treatment failures are characterized as patients who are under 45 years old, so again, have a longer time from where they are to achieving menopause. Um, The risk of subsequent hysterectomy or repeat ablation was double in patients who are under 45 compared to patients over 45. So again, thinking about that younger patient um, who has a longer time to get to menopause, her risk is going to be much higher for needing subsequent surgery um, than a patient who may be only a couple years from natural menopause. Um, All right, and I think, Faye, just as a kind of in closing of this episode, I feel like to some degree, we've kind of poo-pooed the endometrial ablation. (laughs) Um, But it's important to say that this is not to discourage folks from getting endometrial ablations or offering endometrial ablation. I think for the right patient, it can be really helpful in improving their quality of life and decreasing menstrual blood flow. But, It should be treated as a medical procedure or surgery. It shouldn't be used to achieve amenorrhea. It definitely should not be used as birth control. Um, And so maybe we need to go out and make a TikTok to correct some of this misconception.
1: (laughs) Creogs over TikTok.
0: There we go. All right. Um, I think that does it, though, for this episode. So we should try and summarize.
1: Sure. So uh, we started off by talking about... um, what exactly endometrial ablation is. And so remember that this is a minimally invasive surgical procedure designed to treat heavy uterine bleeding in select women who are premenopausal and who do not want future fertility. The ways that it can be done is via laser and resectoscopic endometrial ablation as well as non-resectoscopic techniques that we discussed. Um, Things to kind of consider are things like um, anesthesia and where the patient would like the procedure performed Most trials describing non-resectoscopic ablation devices have used local anesthesia and parenteral conscious sedation, so it does not necessarily preclude the OR. However, you can use things like cervical and paracervical blocks if desired to do the procedure in the office.
0: The right candidate for this patient is someone who is premenopausal, no longer desiring future fertility, and with heavy ovulatory menstrual bleeding. Again, if patients have other causes for menstrual bleeding, particularly if it's suspected that they're anovulatory, they need workup and evaluation and treatment for that specifically. It's important to counsel patients should accept normalization of bleeding and not complete amenorrhea, as amenorrhea rates at one year after ablation really are only about a third. Preoperative evaluation should focus on evaluating the structure and histology of the endometrial cavity. Important because we need to rule out any possibility of endometrial cancer or precancer in the form of EIN, and also to evaluate the shape of the uterine cavity because many devices have specific uterine cavity requirements that must be followed.
1: In terms of the risks of these procedures, there are many different um, things that can occur with endometrial ablation that we'll post on the website in table two from the practice bulletin. Some of the things to consider though are things like distension media overload during um, hystroscopic resections, as well as things like uterine trauma, which can then lead to other issues, such as if you have a perforation, you can then damage the internal organs or even cause things like cervical lacerations and vaginal burns. Another thing to consider finally would be something like post-ablation tubal ligation syndrome in a patient who's had a uh, tubal ligation before.
0: Additional significant complications can include things like pregnancy. Um, Ablation is not a form of birth control. Pregnancy can still occur, and those who become pregnant after ablation have higher rates of significant obstetric comorbidities. Endometrial malignancy is also an issue. Um, Though ablation doesn't seem to delay the diagnosis of malignancy, due to scarring of the endometrium from the procedure, it can make it more difficult for usual assessment of tissue with biopsy or hysteroscopy.
1: Other procedures can certainly be performed at the time of of an ablation. Uh, The contraindications to an endometrial ablation include things like uh, uterine size and shape as All available non-resectoscopic endometrial ablation devices have limitations with respect to the size of the uterine cavity. We do not perform endometrial ablations if someone is pregnant or recently pregnant or desires future pregnancy, if there's presence of active or recent uterine infection, or endometrial malignancy or EIN. Other things to consider would be things like uterine anomalies, myometrial thinning, and bleeding in postmenopausal women
0: overall outcomes from ablation are favorable um, in that patients tend to have good satisfaction and tend to have high rates of lessened bleeding after the procedure. Um, however, surgical outcomes after a procedure have as high as a 17 to 25% rate of subsequent surgery, with hysterectomy rates ranging from 14 to 19%. Those who are more likely to have treatment failure are those who are under 45 years old, with the risk of subsequent hysterectomy or repeat ablation doubled in patients who are under 45 compared to those who are over 45.
1: All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee.
0: So guys, if you enjoyed the episode, head on over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, and give us a five-star rating and review.
1: You can find us on social media, on Twitter at CriogsOverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at Coffee. We don't have a TikTok yet, but maybe we'll consider making one after this episode. And finally, you can also support our show by going onto our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CreogsoverCoffee.
0: You can find show notes for this and every other episode on our website, com.
1: And if you have questions for us, a correction, or want to suggest new episodes, go ahead and email us, CriogsOverCoffee at gmail.com.